Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brabeck. And oh, happy episode. We are visiting with our dear Aunt Jane. It is time to discuss a Miss Marple story. Always, always a happy day for me, isn't it, Catherine? I mean, it's always a happy day for you. And I will say, you know, friend of the podcast, Outstanding Christie scholar Jamie Bernthal recently posted a question asking, like, who you would actually like want in your bubble as Christie characters. And <laughs> this might come as a surprise to you, Kemper, but do you know who one of my first choices probably would be? Miss Jane Marple. It might just be her. It might just be that she would absolutely know what to do, make you some homemade liquor, be totally on top of anything, like going on outside. Yeah, I just feel like Miss Jane Marple might be one of the best people you could choose. Totally agree. I mean, she covers the full spectrum of one's needs. She would take care of all of your creature comforts, Mm -hmm. and she would also protect you from murderers. Oh, and she might... Perhaps, I mean, again, Dark Marple, if it came down to it, she might also murder somebody for you. (laughs) Absolutely, but it would always be for the best of reasons. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Our Dark Marple might be the best person you could choose. I also think she'd be a lot less annoying than Poirot. Actually, oh, well, also, I think by the Poirot way, here's, would get on my nerves. No, but here's the biggest problem with that, Kemper, is that as we know, going into so many months of lockdown, Poirot, if like you started running out of supplies, can you imagine what would happen to him if he ran out of like syrups or his mustache drooped? It would not be a good scene. It would get ugly real fast. It would, yeah, it would, it would just go deeply, deeply downhill, I think. (laughs) Whereas Miss Marple would have that can-do spirit, that sort of Girl Scout ingenuity, if you will, and, you know, make the best of a difficult situation and just soldier on through. I mean, I would like to say as somebody who was a Girl Scout through all of high school. Interesting. I actually never knew that. Whole oh, new yeah. side to you, Catherine. I have a silver and gold award. I have the highest ranking awards in Girl Scouts. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know that my can-do spirit really has helped me that much, Kemper. But Miss Marple, I feel, would be like maybe Girl Guides. You know, gives people a little bit more grit. Sure. <laughs> well, Catherine, what are we covering today? We're covering uh, the tape measure murder. Perhaps an unfortunate title. So it was first published um, in this week in the U.S. On guess what date, Kemper? Yes, Catherine. It was published on your birthday, November 16th. Now everyone knows. (laughs) Yes, it was published on November 16th, 1941. And it was subsequently on a you know less great date, obviously, published in February of 1942 in The Strand under a different title, The Case of the Retired Jeweler. It was collected in Three Blind Mice and Other Stories in the U.S. in 1950 by Dodd Mead and in Miss Marple's Final Cases, posthumously in the U.K. by Collins Crime in October of 1979. You know, quite late there uh, to be published in a book collection in the U.K., mm-hmm. No, we get a few of these once in a while, right? Where it's like, oh, that's kind of odd that this 
was not actually published in a collection. No, absolutely. And obviously that Three Blind Mice collection was not one that was published in the UK since Three Blind Mice still has never been published in the UK. Right. So I just feel bad for the British populace that they were deprived of this shining Miss Marple short story in book form for so long. But uh, fortunately, we are all on the same page, so to speak. So let's just get right into it Mm -hmm. and talk about our victim, one Mrs. Spenlow who is a relatively wealthy woman in the present day, and she has been strangled in her living room. And she happens to live in, that's right, St. Mary Mead. I know. Funny story, and this this relates obliquely to Agatha Christie, but as I was reading the story, I realized that I kept on supplying in my head the name Dora for Mrs. Spenlow. And then I had to look back and I was like, wait, is she called Dora Spenlow? Like, why Why am I doing that? And I realized that I was giving her the first name of Dora because that's the character name in David Copperfield, his first wife, Dora oh, Spenlow. Right. Poor sweet Dora. She, uh, <clears throat> spoiler alert, did not make it to the end of David Copperfield. But, spoiler um, alert, um, yeah, Mrs. Spenlow does not make it through the beginning of the story. (laughs) But, you know, we know that Christy loved her Dickens, so maybe she was inspired by uh, Dora Spenlow. I mean, this will relate a little bit, and, you know, this is a short story episode, so we can be a little fast and loose with the spoilers here, but what they say she is strangled with at the beginning of the story, the police's best guess is that it was possibly a very narrow belt. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'll be honest with you, even after reading that and knowing what the title of the story was, I didn't make the connection as I was reading. That's how much of a lazy passive reader I was being as I read this story. Cause I was just, I was just so excited to be back in St. Mary Mead with Miss Marple. So yeah, oh, I was still, you know, well, if you want to talk about like a Marpellian thing that I have been trying to do for like the last two weeks is that I've been desperately trying to figure out how to do English paper piecing, which is a kind of hand sewn quilting technique. And so I have like on my floor in my living room, at least three tape measures. I'm not kidding. (laughs) See, if Miss Marple were in your quarantine bubble, you would be much further ahead on that technique, I'm sure. Well, she'd also teach me knitting, which I am like incapable of doing. So that would be, (laughs) that would be, that would have been great to have been able to knit at some point would have been great. But I unfortunately completely lack that skill. And I'll be honest, Kemper, I'm not entirely sure that I have the skill of English paper piecing either. (laughs) Well, what you do have skill at is in breaking down puzzle mysteries, be Mm, they long mm -hmm. or short. So let's continue. And uh, you can tell us a little bit about our suspects, or should I say suspect? Yeah, there's pretty much only one. There's sort of two-ish. Two-ish. We get Mr. Spenlow, obviously, because of course, the husband, of course. Gotta look at the husband, yeah. Right. And he is this sort of small, quiet, clean, boring retiree who, unfortunately for him, seems very unconcerned with his wife's murder. He doesn't he just doesn't emote very much. At all. He's a very reserved man. Reserved would be putting it lightly, I think. <laughs> he just he seems like, oh yeah, that's a thing that happened. And we also have Ted Jared, who is a much younger kind of rake, who has this embezzlement scandal under his belt. And he's recently been to St. Mary Mead. 
Right. Cause he's all, he's recently undergone a conversion, right? Mm-hmm. He seems to have undergone some sort of a religious conversion, right. which uh, may or may not be important later on. We shall see. All right, so, so the world as it appears to be, Kemper. Well, we open in St. Mary Mead with the village seamstress slash dressmaker, Miss Pollitt, who we're told is a former lady's maid. You know, she has that kind of lean, spare sort of look to her. I was I was immediately able to visualize her. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly what Christy was going for. She's standing outside of Laburnum Cottage, uh, which is the home of the Spenlows. And she has a dress of Mrs. Spenlows that needs to be tailored in right. hand. And she's knocking on the door because she had an appointment for dress alterations. Nobody answers despite her multiple knocks. And then there's a figure coming down the street. That would be Miss Hartnell, who we've seen before. In uh, stories from St. Mary Mead, this is one of the other spinsters, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, within Miss Marple's circle in St. Mary Mead. She's described as jolly, weather-beaten, 55, and having a loud bass voice, which is definitely her most recognizable characteristic. Mm-hmm. And she says, good afternoon, or or I should say, good afternoon, Miss <laughs> Pollitt. <laughs> right. Uh, the dressmaker basically tells her, about her conundrum here, which is that she can't seem to get into the house for this appointment. And Miss Hartnell basically just takes this opportunity to snoop and runs with it. And she starts tapping at windows because she knows that Mrs. Spenlow um, couldn't have left the house because she would have run into her. Mr. Spenlow left it some time ago, apparently to see Miss Marple, or at least that's what he thinks is going on. We'll get to that in a moment when everyone starts uh, accounting for their whereabouts. And this is actually, I mean, I did find this to be, as is so often the case in Miss Marble short stories, a quite well and breezily written story mm-hmm. by Christy. Right. Um, it goes down super easy. And I really appreciated the scene where Miss Hartnell finds Mrs. Spenlow dead because she's like literally looking through the window mm-hmm. and she says, I'll just take a look through the windows and see if I can find any signs of life. And then she laughs in her usual hearty manner and she gives a perfunctory glance through the front window and Christy writes perfunctory as it was though, it succeeded in its object. Miss Hartnell, it is true, saw no signs of life. On the contrary, she saw through the window Mrs. Spindle lying on the hearth rug dead. <laughs> right. And I, anybody who ever says that Agatha Christie is not funny, think about how cleverly worded and funny that sentence is. Yeah. Two sentences. Yeah. So they get Constable Polk of St. Mary Mead. And, you know, subsequently we're going to get both Colonel Melchett and Inspector Slack, who we are very familiar with, both of them. They come in a little bit later, but Constable Polk comes and, um, you know, it's his murder, obviously. And the husband, as Occam's razor goes, is the most likely murderer, right? Because who else would it have been? The house was closed and nobody was seen going in or out and it was a limited time window. So clearly it was pretty much him. We're also told that Mrs. Spenlow is actually the one who had the money between the two of them and that upon her death, her husband inherits all of that. So we've got a fairly ironclad motive for the husband murdering his wife as well. We get a stray detail that... After um, going through the scene, Constable Polk seems to have picked up an odd 
pin that ends up um in his like jacket lapel. His tunic. Yeah. So yeah, and it's Miss Marple who notices it. So chances are it's important. Yeah, and again, short story. Chances are this is probably <laughs> right. the most important clue, right? Yeah, but you know nothing's really remarked about it. He's just sort of like, oh yeah, look at that. Mr. Spenlow says that Miss Marple rang him up, that she actually called him at the cottage and asked him to come over, that she was anxious to consult him about something. Right. And, and it, it, there's like a very small window, right? Right. That's the primary reason, I suppose, why they're talking to Miss Mar- Marple is to ascertain whether or not she actually did call Mr. Spenlow. And he, she says, certainly not. You know, she never rang him up at 2.30 or any other time. So, you know, you can tell that they're thinking, okay, well, he's just lying about that. He's pretending. Right that the phone rang, but it never did. Right. And like, you know, maybe he never left the house at all, right? Mm-hmm. Although, except he did at 3.15 show up at Miss Marple's house because her maid can attest to that because her maid told him that, in fact, Miss Marple was at the Women's Institute, which she was. So she could not have called, but he was seen there. It's just that the time frame is enough that he also clearly could have murdered his wife. He easily could have murdered her, left out the back, walked over to Miss Marple's, had the conversation with the maid, and then come back and been agog at the fact that his wife had been murdered. We also find out in all of this that Mrs. Spenlow was at one point also a maid in house of one Sir Robert Abercrombie. And then this is actually her second marriage. She married a gardener. They were divorced. She became a very successful florist. And then she married Mr. Spenlow, who had been a very successful jeweler. And then they both retired. And then they both moved to St. Mary Mead. Mrs. Spenlow was, you know, deeply involved with the Church of England and they were social. And here's the other really critical fact here. Miss Marple likes Mr. Spenlow. Yes. She likes him a lot. mm -hmm, And one of the most important things that we should always acknowledge in Miss Marple is that her judgment is to be trusted. Yeah, I mean, that goes for Poirot. It goes for Miss Marple, too. And how many people does Miss Marple genuinely like? Very few. Very, very few. Especially how many married men does Miss Marple like? <laughs> Let's put it that way. Not many. So I think we can sort of take her at face value here that it can't be Mr. Spenlow. It would also be a pretty boring short story, wouldn't it, if it were Mr. Spenlow? The chronology of Mrs. Spenlow's past, you know, it's, it's interesting. And Christy really very casually lays it in there that she left her position as a between maid to marry the second gardener. And with him, with the second gardener, they started a flower shop in London. And Mm -hmm. then the shop did really well. The gardener, not so much. He died. And then she went on to marry Mr. Spenlow. I actually had to look this up because I did not know what a between maid was. And I I didn't even really remark on the term until Miss Marple made reference to her position later on in the story. And she called her a tweenie which I thought was really funny. I was like, oh, I've never heard a maid called a tweenie before. And my guess was that a between maid was halfway between, you know, a more downstairs sort of scullery-ish maid and an upstairs ladies maid somehow. But I was totally wrong about that. A between maid is a maid who works very much in the downstairs area, um, never goes upstairs. And she works between the butler, the housekeeper, and potentially even the cook, essentially serving those upper servants. Mm-hmm. So she's very much the 
maid who would be serving in the servant's hall at dinner. A little bit like Daisy from Downton Abbey. Sure. Uh, you know, Daisy was, was very much a scullery maid, I think. She was pretty much confined to the kitchen for the many, many years that that series ran. Right. But the between maid would serve those upper servants, but very much be a downstairs servant. So that's, the, you know, that is someone who's coming from very, very modest beginnings as a between maid to then open up a flower shop once she's coming out of service and then have the flower shop do well and then become this fairly well-to-do uh, wife of a retired jeweler and, you know, living with her own house in St. Mary Mead. So Mrs. Spenlow has done extremely well for herself. Right, and seems also to be relatively well-liked in St. Mary Mead. And as we know about St. Mary Mead, it's a real judgy town. <laughs> yeah. The thing about it is Miss Marple, as again we said, she very staunchly stands her ground basically on the innocence of Mr. Spenlow. She makes a funny comment. There's there's a sort of a side that, well, perhaps there was an argument between the Spenlows about money, but Miss um, Marple just absolutely throws it away in like one line, and she says, they're not quarreling. That was one of my other favorite moments yeah. in the story because it's also legitimately so funny. It's really um, funny. This is what Christy writes. She's speaking with Inspector Slack, of course. Mm-hmm. It's a you know another Miss Marple Inspector Slack duel that's happening here. He, of course, wants to go for the the easy way out as per usual. Uh, he says, "What with the money angle, and if they'd been on bad terms lately." But Miss Marple interrupted him. Oh, but they hadn't. You know that for a fact. Everyone would have known if they'd quarreled. The maid, Gladys Brent, she'd have soon spread it round the village. The inspector said feebly, she mightn't have known and received a pitying smile in reply. I just love, she doesn't even have to say anything. She's like, that's Miss Marple's version of like, oh, sweetie, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, 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 you don't understand. Everybody would have known. The maid would have talked. She's like, oh, sweetie, you're so cute. But no, <laughs> she just shuts him down. <laughs> right. And so she slightly nods towards Ted Gerard. She notes that Mrs. Spenlow had kind of the crush on him. They were at least, they were spending a lot of time together, right? Right. And so she says that, but also in the same thing she says, and she notes, because of course Miss Marple knows this, um, even though she's not the police, is that Mrs. Spenlow was found wearing a kimono. So suggestive, right? Right. Suggestive of the fact that perhaps Mrs. Spenlow and, and Ted Jard were having an affair. It's interesting, too, because this is for a short story. There were a lot of things that I had to look up, get the full context. But, you know, it's mentioned that he's part of the Oxford group, mm-hmm. which was this, you know, Christian organization that was very much about redeeming oneself. It, it was all about kind of redemption and forgiveness and becoming a better person. And, you know, apparently the they believe that the solution to life was was to surrender oneself over to God's plan and to, you know, just be a better person and make amends, et cetera, et cetera. This has American origins, not surprisingly, the Oxford group, because, you know, Americans take things to either extreme. It's just kind of a fact. So um, <laughs> we're either really good or really bad. Uh, and they come around to the same place anyway. So that's interesting and not really in any way resolved before we get to our clues that bridge us over into the world as it actually is. So perhaps that's going to be important. It might be. 
episode is brought to you by yarn. Yarn, you say? You heard me, Kemper. Yarn. As in, a tale one spins? Well, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense because Yarn is an interactive storytelling app where stories are told as text messages between the main characters. Genres range from romance to comedy, horror to action, and more. It also offers video and audio-only episodes to watch and listen to on your phone in a few minutes. Basically, it's like taking the 19th century novel and dragging it into the 21st century with all the attendant bells and whistles the internet has to offer. My kind of app! So much joy to be had in perusing all of the content, and we're sure you, our dear listeners, will agree. So tap through the most addictive and immersive stories today only on Yarn. Trust me, with over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must-play. Download Yarn for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Y-A-R-N. Download it today to watch, read, and listen to all your favorite fiction stories. From steamy to horror, Yarn has it all. We really only have a few clues here. We have the first clue, which we already mentioned, which is that pin. Because, oh, the constable comes to the scene and then also he randomly ends up with, and it's a, what it is, is it's a straight pin. Here's the thing. It's a little bit of a cheat because we're not given a specific description of the pin until Miss Marple is explaining right. everything to Colonel Melchett at the end. This is what she says. Because he says, what's a pin? It was only a common pin, sort of thing any woman might use. And she replies, oh no, Colonel Melchett, that's where you're wrong. To a man's eye, perhaps, it looked like an ordinary pin, but it wasn't. It was a special pin, a very thin pin. The kind you buy by the box. The kind used mostly by dressmakers. Yeah. 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 But we're not told that. We're just told that there's a pin in his tunic. Right. Although, I mean, given the title of the story, given who the first person (laughs) on the scene is, and given that anybody who's ever sewn would know what you use pins for, you can kind of make that leap really quickly. Sorry, Catherine, we're not all quilting in our spare time at the moment. Well, again, again, you're, you know, you're just in the zone here. I know. Although just to be clear, Kemper, quilting, let's put that in quotation marks so that nobody has any (laughs) expectation of me. (laughs) You're going to have to put something up on the Graham account. Let us see your progress. I've made, somebody listening to this could give me some advice about cutting out the shapes better because I have had to toss some. So I'll bet you that someone listening to this could actually give you some really good advice. I wouldn't be surprised. I would not remotely be surprised. Um, so help, help Catherine out. (laughs) I know. Help help me with my hand stitching. So clue number two, Gumper. Clue number two. Okay. So we also do know that there had been a jewel theft at the, uh, Abercrombie's residence. That is the family that Mrs. Spenlow was working for as a tweenie. 
And that suddenly she then came into money because she was able to start up this florist shop with the second gardener after they got married. So it seems that they somehow, you know, acquired a lump sum that is not easy to come by as a lowly between maid. It also seems that if she in fact did have anything to do with it, she likely wasn't acting alone. That sort of throws suspicion on her husband, of course. And to be fair, we have to make some leaps here, but they're modest leaps because is there anyone else who's been mentioned in the story who perhaps was also a servant before do, she do I do I get was the, in her present do career? Do I get the third clue comfort as always? I have orchestrated this so that <laughs> Catherine once again can get the third clue because this dovetails nicely with the second clue. Please, please take it away, Catherine. Never, ever, ever underestimate the help. Never do it. Because who is the other member of the servant class originally who's now sort of moved up a little bit the ladder who figures so prominently in this story? Mentioned on the very first page. Oh, so casually. Mm. Oh, oh, Agatha, you master, you. You wily, wily mystery writer. Let's bring it home, Catherine. Resolution here. Yeah, let's go for it. So let's just say up front that that whole story that Miss Marple sort of tells about, oh, you know, Ted Gerard had this whole crush, the kimono thing, blah, blah, blah. It was basically a feint, right? Because Miss Marple at no point clearly thinks that. So um, she decides to do what she does, which is put a plan in action. And she rolls up a dress to bring to Miss Pollitt. And then what, Kemper? So she goes into the post office and she kind of just gets a sense of the daily routine there, the daily rhythms, the comings and goings of people. Because the one thing that has to be accounted for here, if Mr. Spenlow didn't do it, is that he wasn't lying about that phone call that he got from, right. quote unquote, Miss Marple that was drawing him away from the house. So who made that phone call? How and when did that happen? Well, we know when it happened, but we, we don't know how that happened. And what she realizes is that there's a period of time right around 2.30 mm-hmm. when there's a bus that actually comes in from the outside world into St. Mary Mead, into the bubble of St. Mary Mead. And it's a big event. And the postmistress goes out and there's just a lot of hubbub and distraction going on. And it would be very easy for a person to slip into the public telephone box in the post office at that time, make a quick, discreet call, perhaps pretending to be one Miss Jane Marple. How dare this person? I know, I know. Sacrilege. Cast aspersions on our Miss Marple and uh, then go about her business. And you know what? It would be a lot easier if said person lived close to that public telephone box. And um, where does Miss Pollitt live, Catherine? Basically above the post office. Yeah, she lives right above it. So she actually does even go through with this ruse. And Christy writes, not till the postmistress returned to her post after the bus came, did Miss Marple go upstairs and explain to Miss Pollitt that she wanted her old gray crepe altered and made more fashionable, if that were possible. Miss Pollitt promised to see what she could do. And then she goes straight to Colonel Melchett over. She goes over Inspector Slack's head. I by know. The way. I know. I noticed that too, <laughs> which I think is really funny. Yeah. She totally pulls rank on Inspector Slack. <laughs> yeah. I, um, it's a very Miss Marble thing to do because like, why, why bother even? Indeed. 
Yeah, and she basically, you know, just explains what happened because the answer here is like incredibly obvious. It's a good little puzzle because it is one of those puzzles where once she explains everything, you're like, oh my God, this is so simple and obvious, but I certainly didn't make every single connection. I mean, the pin is very obvious when we get up to the other side of it. The narrow belt is, of course, a tape measure. And and hence the title you know, of the entire story. Yes. Yeah, the title is perhaps a little bit of a spoiler, but I really do love that when a title is also a major clue and it doesn't spoil things, which it really didn't for me. Like, that's just that it's like that extra added bit of cleverness and audacity on Christie's part. So the pin is very obvious when we're on the other side of it. The title was super obvious. The kimono, which also confounded me a little bit because I did think it was a little weird that Mrs. Spenlo was in a kimono. That's super obvious because she was about to have a dress fitting. Right. I mean, the the, the idea is that uh, Miss Pollitt came in, Mrs. Spenlo let her in, and the murder happened in her living room. And she was, of course, dressed in her kimono because she was about to put the dress on that Miss Pollitt was holding. They never got that far because then Miss Pollitt strangled her with her tape measure and then left the house quickly and then knocked on it again. And we've seen those sorts of time shifts and temporal obfuscations in Christie many, many a time before. But of course, we need to also figure out why (laughs) Miss Pollitt murdered Mrs. Spenlow. So what's the reason behind all this, Catherine? Again, we mentioned that Mrs. Spenlow has now become like a very respectable member of St. Mary Mead. And she then also gets a little bit swayed by this fellow Ted Jared, he convinces her to quote unquote come clean, basically like just to clear her conscience about any sort of guilt of past affair, like anything in her past, you know, so she can, I guess, become holier. She's making amends. She's on the making amends portion, I feel like, of her 12 step program where like you kind of have to, you know, just come clean. Right. So the thing is, Ms. Pollitt, unfortunately, also finds this out and they were unfortunate the people who robbed their old employers. That's how Mrs. Spenlow had the money to open up her florist shop with her first husband. And I mean, and Miss Marple sums it up in her usual brutal yet accurate way. Well, I mean, accurate, hence brutal way, where she says they both got the same amount of money, obviously, out of the robbery, but it all worked out for one and it didn't really amount to much for the other. For Mrs. Spenlow, everything she did turned out well. Money made money, but the other one, the lady's maid, must have been unlucky. She came down to being just a village dressmaker. Then they met again, and then it was quite all right at first, because obviously that was a secret that they both wanted to keep, but when, you know, Ted Gerard came on the scene and Mrs. Spenlow started feeling feeling like she needed to unburden herself, that obviously is going to affect Miss Pollitt because she's just going to tell what they did. And, you know, it's not really stated, but I would imagine that maybe she even told Miss Pollitt what she was going to do. And that's why Miss Pollitt said, well, in that case, I need to murder you. <laughs> so right, Although, it's a very convincing reason. I mean, it's a great motivation for murder. Yeah, of course it is. It's also just very clean. Everything about this story is actually very clean. It all makes very clear sense. I really love like that she didn't even really have to leave. All she had to do was murder her, walk out the door, and then just stand outside knocking. 
And that's believable too, because it's a village where there aren't that many people passing by all the time. We're not in London. There aren't, you know, a ton of people that are going to see. She could pick her time carefully that way anyway. Yeah. I mean, and all the characters make sense too. I mean, it's clean both as to puzzle and character. They're all eminently believable. Every single one of them. It's a very neat little story. If you forgive the title, which... I mean, I do have to say it's rather unfortunate. I suppose, but again, I mean, it didn't, you know, it didn't spoil it for me. And that, that American title is, uh, I don't know, not quite as evocative. The what British, was it again? No, the British, that was the British title is the one. Oh, no, excuse me. The British title for me was not quite as evocative. The Case of the Retired Jeweler. I mean, I suppose it does put the suspicion squarely on Mr. Spenlow right, right. from the get-go. That's not bad. I mean, it's not, it's not evocative, but it also is a misdirect and it kind of complicates it a little bit more than calling it the tape measure murder. That's true. Fair point. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. So normally when we talk about Best Fiends, we check in with Catherine about how we get a little relationship Mm -hmm. status update. Important. Yes, it is. But this time I'd like to do something a little different. We've been hearing from a number of you, our dear listeners, about your own experiences with Best Fiends, and I had to share one of them because I think we can all be inspired by the heights this particular person has achieved. Now, I'm quoting here from an actual email that was sent to us recently. Are you ready, Catherine? I'm a little scared, but I'm ready. All right. I'm on level 1026, and things have changed. There are three paths to games, fewer fiends popping out of boxes, and it gets harder and harder to solve a puzzle on the first try. That is the end of the quote from this tantalizing email, level 1026, Catherine. And yet, our listener continues on one more happy little soldier in the ever-expanding universe of best fiends. I'm Shook Kemper, and I mean that in the best of ways. I don't blame you. So, engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. You know, this is another one, and we say this so often when we cover these Miss Marvel short stories that haven't been adapted in the English language. It's such a shame that it didn't get adapted because this is another one that takes place in St. Mary Mead. We're in situ, right, mm-hmm. with Miss Marple. This isn't one of those awkward framed stories, the stories in a story, you know, that, that right. we have in 12 out of the 13 short stories and the 13 problems. I'm honestly not sure why the ITV Marple series did not adapt this one. I mean, they did adapt Greenshaw's Folly with a little sprinkling of the thumb mark of Mm -hmm. St. Peter, and I'm glad that they did that one, but this one would have made a fantastic 90-minute adaptation. You easily could have filled it out, and I think just had a great little Miss Marple story set right in St. Mary Mead. I know. I quite like this story, Kemper, and I think it's really worth reading. It's very short, so not going to take a lot of um, your time, so anybody who is really busy at this point doom scrolling on twitter can certainly read this i think what we probably could all use now is the clarity and clean lines of this story agreed and for true true tape measure murder heads 
There actually is an adaptation of this. It is a Japanese language adaptation. It's part of the 2004-2005 Agatha Christie's Great Detectives Poirot and Marple series, which we did cover. We covered an episode of that series on our Patreon account. We when did. When we were taking a closer look at some non-English language adaptations of Christie out there in the world, which is one of the big holes that we have in this podcast generally. You know, we don't cover non-English. English language adaptations, and there are a lot, and um, especially in Japan, actually, uh, within the last 20 or so years, there's been a lot of activity, and um, it's a great series. You know, it features this crossover character named Mabel and her pet duck, Oliver, Mm -hmm. because it's anime. Yep, this is an anime series, and it's it's actually really charming. No, and I know actually some people, even in the last few weeks, have asked us about this on Twitter, if we had ever intended to cover this. We did cover it. It's just on the Patreon account. Yeah, it's just on the Patreon. But highly recommend. I you know, I think that the series is a bit hard to get one's hands on. It is, uh, except outside it is of Japan. So delightful. I'm going to just be totally honest. It is delightful. And so if you can find it, please do. And they cover, you know, they cover a lot of these Miss Marple short stories that have not been covered elsewhere. I believe that The Case of the Perfect Maid is on there. Motive versus Opportunity. Ingots of Gold, I remember, was also on there. But also a lot of Christie classics as well. And the length of the adaptations varies quite a bit. So for the, you know, shorter Christie stories, they might just be one or two episodes. And then for the longer novels, three or four episodes. And um, just really, really well done with a lot of a lot of care but also you know a lot of cultural specificity when it comes to anime which I was there for it I just found everything about it to be charming the love that they had for Christy the they're very faithful adaptations I mean outside of mm-hmm. the talking duck even though they feature a duck they're actually very faithful it's true yeah and also I can't reiterate this enough times, even though we reiterated it over and over and over again on the Patreon episode. It really does have the greatest opening and closing theme songs of oh any God. show that has ever existed. Should almost just watch it for the opening credits alone. It's just pure, pure gold. <laughs> it's 100% worth seeking them out. I mean, not just to be delighted over their credits, but because yeah. I think they're nicely, nicely done adaptations. And we do clip from the opening credits sequence, even though, of course, you're only getting the audio of it. It's it's better than nothing if you would like to check that out on our Patreon account, which is over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. And I think that's probably a good segue oh, into... Oh, look at you. Uh, Smooth sailing, <laughs> Kemper. Our end notes here, the part of the episode where most people probably press stop, <laughs> but that's okay. We will persevere because um, some of this is, you know, new information to those who have perhaps just joined us or want to find out what we are covering next. And uh, what are we covering next, Catherine? Because it's pretty exciting. The Pale Horse, Kemper. The Pale Horse. I am so excited to be covering this late career Christy gem 
dare I say. I mean, I think um, I think we might have some witches in store. We've got some witches. We've got Ariadne Oliver. <laughs> we have some other crossover characters, actually. This is one that, that actually is very squarely placed in the Christie-verse, and we see some people pop up who we haven't seen for uh, decades, actually. So it's all very exciting. So we can't wait to cover that one in our next episode. And uh, in the meantime, we would love to hear from you, of course. You can visit Visit us over on our Patreon site, as I just mentioned. You could also email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at allaboutthedame, and Catherine's Twitter handle is at brobcat. Perhaps you might want to uh, tweet some quilting suggestions to her. <laughs> she, she you I'll, know. I'll do a poor job at them, but, you know, I will try. <laughs> um, you can also find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha, where Catherine will be showcasing her quilting prowess <laughs> in the months to come, I'm sure. That's a guarantee now, Catherine, um, you basically have to do it. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of appreciate being forced now because you know it, it does place a level of burden on me. So I, I don't know if I should hate you or thank you for it. <laughs> I'm just yeah, I'm trying to motivate you yeah. here. It's a constructive carrot right. I'm dangling. Right, here. <laughs> you know it's it's always appreciated, Kemper. If you haven't yet rated or reviewed us, we would really appreciate it if you did, especially since it helps other people find the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.